Romans chapter 7 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to start in verse 7 and work our way through 25, so we have a lot of ground to cover. And uh, this is one of my uh, favorite passages in Romans, particularly because it's such a comfort to me. Uh, but we'll get to that. So I'm going to go ahead and read it for us. This is Romans 7, beginning of verse 7, working our way all the way through 25. So Paul here writes, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me that what is good, in order that the sin might be shown to me to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am a flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law. That is good. So now so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I do, uh, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Lord Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Now if you have been with us the last few weeks, uh, working our way through Romans, and in particularly uh, the last couple weeks, thinking about the law, and in very much in particular last week, you might at this point be wondering, what does Paul feel about the law? Because you might be tempted to think, well, Paul seems like he doesn't like the law very much. Alright, so this is what we read last week. Let me just read it. You can back up in your Bible if you want to. I'm going to read just verse 4. Verse 5 and verse 6, but this is what we studied last week. Paul writes, Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. Verse 5, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And verse 6, But now you are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, 
so that we serve in a new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. It almost seems like Paul maybe hates the law. I mean, he says here in these three verses uh, that you've died to the law. He uses the, the, this example of marriage and says you've been granted now as a Christian a, a, a divorce from the law. You're no longer bound to it. And in verse 6, uh, he says that uh, you are no longer captive to the law. And so we're kind of left here now thinking, well, what, what then is the law for? And what is the law? And for us, as 21st century American Gentile Christians who ha- were not raised really with the law in the way that a Jew in those days was raised with the law, we really are very confused about the place of the law in the life of the Christian. And so if you'll remember, at the very beginning of uh, really all of this, uh, this study in chapter 6, Paul sets out to correct a misunderstanding in chapter 6, not about the law, but about grace. And the way that he tries to correct a misunderstanding about grace is by using a rhetorical device, asking a question that he anticipates that might be asked, and he answers it. And so about grace, if you remember, he says, well, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. And so here at the beginning of chapter 7, he employs the exact same rhetorical device again, this time not to correct a misunderstanding about grace, but now on the other side of the coin of the Christian life to correct a misunderstanding about the law and what it's for. And this time he's not going to use one question, he's actually going to use three. And this is what we're going to kind of frame our study this morning around. These three questions that Paul asks in verse 7 through 25, his way of correcting the place of the law and the life of the Christian. Okay, three questions. First question is this, is the law sin? That's the first question. Is the law sin? And its substance, is that what the law is? Is it sin? Second, did the law bring death to me? All right, second question. Did the law bring death to me? And finally, and perhaps the most important question, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is going to answer these three questions for us this morning. And by doing so, he's going to show us that the place of the law in the life of the Christian is to show us who we truly are. That at our core, we are sinful. Not just in what we do, but sin actually dwells within us. And the only possible hope that we have deliverance is that we might be rescued from the inside out. And the only one who can do that is our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, so let's look at these three questions this morning together. First question, is the law sin? Look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Again, I want you to remember Romans 6, same kind of language. Again, he's anticipating, he's making this argument now for seven chapters. He's anticipating that somebody might be confused at this point. And ask this question, what should we say then? In light of everything that we've just said, what should we say then? That the law is sin? 
in the same language. By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. Okay, so, is the law sin? I'm going to make it real simple for you this morning. No. No. The question, though, that I want you to answer, particularly at your tables, is, well, why not? Because it's not necessarily the answer that Paul uh, wants us to understand. Although that much is very important. You need to know that the law is not sin. But even deeper than that, why is it not sin? Because that gets at, well, what is sin for? Notice what he says. Yet if I had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. What's the purpose of the law if it is not sin? Well, the law is not sin. It shows us our sin. It shows us our sin. It is like a mirror that reveals our sin to us. One way to think about it is this. What came first? Did sin come first? Or did the law come first? And just think about it. Sin, right? All the way back in Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the world at the fall. And yet the law is not really given until an entire book later. And Paul makes this point actually in Romans chapter 5. 5 verse 13, you can write it down if you want to. You can turn there if you would like or you can just listen. He says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Now this is very important. His point is, what came first, the sin or the law? If the law had come first, then we might be tempted to say, just as people are, he anticipates us asking, well, the law then is just sin. The law is bad. The law just gets us to do things that we don't want to do, and it's sinful. It's inciting us to sin. It's causing us to sin. And he's saying, no, no, no. You must recognize what came first. Sin was here long before the law was. Sin was well established within the human heart before the law came. In other words, sin existed before the law. The law in itself is not sin. It was given to show us just how sinful we truly are. James 1 verse 22, Be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. James's point here is that the law, the Word of God, is like a mirror. It reveals who we are. It shows us who we truly are. And as we brush up against the holy, good, and righteous law of God, we begin to get a true and more accurate picture of just how sinful, just how deep, just how dark, just how wretched we truly are. Uh, I don't like hospitals. Uh, not visiting other people in hospitals, I actually have grown to find great joy in visiting as a pastor uh, men and women who are in the hospital. I, actually, for myself, I grew up in a, uh, the, the home of a physician. I was pre-med when I went to college before I felt the, the Lord calling me to full-time ministry. And so it's odd that I don't like hospitals, but I'm kind of one of these guys, and probably you're like this as well, that ignorance is bliss, right? Just kind of rather not know. You're probably right now, especially if any of your physicians are like, you're nuts. Um, but I, I just I kind of would rather not know. 
And, and part of it is because the more that you know just about how unhealthy you really are, well, you begin to get a different picture of yourself than the ignorance that you'd rather live in. My brother-in-law, Jake, shortly after my wife and I were married, uh, I got a phone call from uh, my mother-in-law and my father-in-law that informed me that my brother-in-law, Jake, had been in an accident, and they wanted me to tell my wife. And at that point, we didn't know much about his accident. We knew that he had flipped his Tahoe uh, up in the North Georgia Mountains. Uh, We knew that he was by himself, and that's about all we knew. Uh, And at that point, they kind of said, well, he's fine. Uh, He's he's at the hospital, and we think he's going to be okay. Well, the longer he was in the hospital, it seemed like every about, I don't know, several hours or so, we would get new news. And for about two days, that news was increasingly worse and worse and worse. What began as just, well, it was a single car accident, and he flipped his car, turned into eventually, well, he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, which actually probably saved his life, um, ironically. Uh, And when he flipped the car, his body slammed against the roof of the Tahoe. He lost uh, many of his top rows of teeth, but more importantly, he cracked uh, vertebra that severed some of his spine, and he had no feeling in his legs. It was very weak in his right arm. And that ended up turning into, well, he now, if he ever wants to walk again, must spend time in an intensive spinal rehabilitation center, and there is no promise that he will ever be able to walk normally again, or even at all. And I remember sitting there with my wife, and she asked, why does it seem like every bit of news that Jake just seems like he's getting worse and worse and worse? I just said, it's not that he's getting worse. It's we're finding out how bad it really is. The first bit of news we had was incomplete, but his spine was just as broken then as it was two days later when we realized just how bad it really was. Now, I'll let you know that end of the story, Jake walked out of that spinal rehabilitation center, and Jake now is actually probably the most healthy and the strongest he's ever been in his life. And that's the grace of God in his life, and we were thankful for that. But I tell that story because I want you to understand the law helps us to see that even though we would rather live in our ignorance and think that we've got it all together and think that we are not as bad as we truly are and think that we just have a little bit of a sin problem, the law helps us to see, no, 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 it is much, much worse. What I want you to know this morning is this. God has given us the law in that way to show us our sin because he loves us. Not because he just wants to stick it to us and prove, oh, look at you, you're a sinner. But because he loves you. Because it's not just the immorality of sin that affects us. It's that sin itself it hurts us. It wages war against us and other people. And if we go on in our ignorance, not understanding just how wretched we are, then we are left in our sin. And it will consume us. So Paul's point this morning, is the law of sin? No. 
if it had not been for the law, we would not have known our sin. And so he, he gives us an example. I want you to move on to, to the second part of verse 7. And his example is coveting. Of all things, coveting. And I want you to think this morning, why would he pick coveting? What a strange commandment. But the reason I think he picks coveting is because many of the sins that we might commit are pretty obvious. In other words, they're very external. Um, stealing. When you steal something, that's pretty... Yeah, you, you physically took something from someone else, right? If you commit adultery, obviously that is a very physical act. But something about coveting is not as easily recognized. It's not as external. It's a very internal sin. And so he chooses this sin, and he could have chosen many internal sins, to make a point that if you had not been given the law, you would have never known that you covet. All right, so this is what he says. The second part of verse 7, he says, I would have not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that the law promised, proved, uh, promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, delivered me, or, or deceived me, and through it, killed me. All right, and then he ends with this in verse 12. So the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So not only is this law not sin, but he says it's actually good, it's righteous. Why? It comes from God. And by its design, it is a mirror designed to reveal who we really are in our sinfulness. The ancient Greeks had a saying, uh, Nothi Satan means know thyself. You've probably heard that before because it wasn't just the ancient Greeks uh, who used it, but that saying has been passed down from centuries, from Plato to Hobbes to Benjamin Franklin, John Jacques Rousseau, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Know thyself. And there's something about the idea of knowing yourself that for centuries philosophers have really um, gravitated to. The importance of knowing who you really are. The law helps us to know who we are. It helps us to do what uh, Psalm 139 says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. I want you to write that down. This week I want you to actually read that psalm. And in particular this verse, Psalm 139, verse 23. And I want you to be honest with yourself about how truly frightening that verse can actually be. Search me and know my heart. Not just the parts you want God to know. The parts that you are projecting the parts that you want other people to think of you, but every part of you to ask God to search you and to know your heart. The way that He does that is through His holy, good, and righteous law. John Calvin says it this way, You are not indeed to understand that no difference whatever can be known between right and wrong without the law. 
But it is that without the law, we are either too dull of apprehension to discern our depravity or that we are made wholly insensible through our self-flattery. In other words, we know right and wrong without the law. That's not the issue. The issue is that we are so prone to self-justification or self-flattery or just a completely different view of ourself other than our own depravity that we need it to call our bluff, to show us who we really are. That's the first question, is the law sin? Second question, did the law bring death to me? I promise this is going to get encouraging. Romans 7, verse 13. He says this, did that which is good. The second question, did that which is good then? So if the law is good, well, did a good thing bring death to me? Is it the law that condemns me? Is it the law that now brings me to death? Again, by no means. Okay, well, if it's not the law, then what is it? He answers it. It was sin, producing death in me through that which is good in order that sin might be be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Okay. So like a mirror, like an x-ray, the law is showing us just how bad we really are. The law is not bringing death to us any more than an x-ray is not the one that's causing injury. It's showing just how injured we really are. And his point is that if the law is not bringing you death, the sin within you is bringing death. This is why the law is a grace. Because if you're left in your sin, then you have been condemned to die. And if you're left in ignorance, thinking that you've got it all together, that you're not that bad, that you are, you know, if you can just do a few good things this side of heaven, then everything's going to be okay for you. Then you've got a wrong view of yourself, a wrong view of God. And you are condemned to die. So the law is a grace. It's good. It's righteous. He's given us this picture of our sin and our death. And then, in this interesting example, Paul uses a first personal pronoun. I. And he begins what people call one of the greatest pictures of just how confusing the Christian life in between justification and glorification really can be. Alright, so I'm going to read it again. I want you to read along with me. If I get tongue-tied or your eyes get tongue-tied, I think almost that's what Paul's trying to do. Just to show you what this actually practically looks like. Verse 15. I do not understand my own actions. Okay, first... Have you ever felt that way? Yeah. Never forget, I was meeting with a man who is addicted to pornography. And I knew he was addicted when he said this thing. I don't even want to do it anymore. I don't even want to do it anymore. And it might not be porn for you, although it could be this morning. But it could be about a host of many other things that... You find yourself doing them and you think, I don't even want to do this. Why am I doing this? Paul says, I I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. 
Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, and that is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. Are you confused yet? So I think Paul is making a point. Sin, this side of heaven, is confusing. Now, you need to make a decision this morning, and you might not be able to just make it this morning because for centuries, uh, very learned and wise Christian men, all of whom I would not call heretical and all of whom I think uh, know Jesus and know the Bible deeply, have disagreed about this particular set of verses. The question is, who is the I that Paul is referring to? And there has been a lot of disagreement. I'm going to give you a few options just to show you how much disagreement there really is. Some commentators and theologians have said, well, this is actually a non-Christian. And their point is because he says a few things here that might lead us to believe that. He says this, verse 17, It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Alright? He, he makes this point that he is almost, at this point, held captive by the law. Well, how could that be? If you've been set free from the law, he's just said that. If a Christian's been set free from the law, then why is he now held captive to the law? Well, this must not be a Christian. Others have said, well, maybe it's a pre-Christian. John Stott's a good example of this. That this is somebody who at this point uh, has become a Christian, uh, but he's writing to these Jews, and, and they don't really yet have the power of the Holy Spirit. They're kind of in this in-between state. They've heard the gospel. They're, they're not totally yet a believer and they did not have the power of the Holy Spirit to truly transform them. It's like a pre-Christian. A totally different category. Alright? Uh, maybe it's a new Christian. So a brand new Christian, they just become a Christian, and now it's just very confusing, right? Now, a mature Christian would never say, these people would argue, that they are held under the law and sin in this way. But a, a new Christian might. Maybe it's a nominal Christian. Somebody who claims Christianity but is so confused, I do not understand my own actions. They think they know Jesus, but they don't really. Or, maybe actually Paul, and using the first personal pronoun I, isn't trying to be cute or clever. Maybe he's actually just talking about himself. And if Paul is talking about himself, then Paul is actually not referring to a nominal Christian or a new Christian or a non-Christian. He's actually talking about this is actually what Christian maturity looks like. Now this morning, wherever you fall on the fence, I don't think you could be called heretical. Many have disagreed. But I want to give you an argument this morning, very briefly, of why I think Paul is not trying to be cute. He's actually talking about his own personal experience, and his own experience, not in the past, but actually in the present. If you look at this, 
verse 13, he says, Did that which is good then bring death to me? In other words, that's in the past tense. He's speaking the first person, but he's talking in the past tense. Then in verse 15, all of a sudden, what does he switch to? The present. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but the very thing I do I hate. He's not talking about this in the past. He's talking about it in the present, and I believe he's using the first personal pronoun, I, very intentionally. That Paul is meaning to show us that the Christian life, in between justification and glorification, we call that sanctification, those believers in Jesus who have been saved by the gospel of Jesus Christ have been set free from the law, set free from its condemnation, but not set free from obeying the law, now live a life that is a war. A war that is waging between two realities. The identity that you now have as a Christian, as a son of God, as a man, that you are in Christ Jesus, but also the practical reality that though that is your identity at your very core, your actions at times would lead yourself and others to think otherwise. And that leads to confusion. I do not do the very thing that I want to do. I do not understand my actions. I believe this is the experience for many Christians. And because they are not able to get to his final question, they are left very, very discouraged. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you find yourself identifying with Paul. And you say, I do not understand what I'm doing. I don't know why. Because I don't want to anymore. I don't know why. I do the things that I do. But I'm so discouraged because I keep on sinning. And this morning I want you to know that one of the reasons that I believe that he's talking about Christian maturity is not just because he's using the present tense. And I actually agree with somebody who's a lot smarter than me, John Calvin. The reason why I believe this is I do not think, unless you have the presence of the Holy Spirit working within you, I don't think you have the ability to think that you're sinful at all. That that desire within you to do rightly, to follow what is good and righteous and pure, the law, you don't even have unless you have the gospel. Unless you have grace, unless you have the Holy Spirit. And this is what Calvin says. He says, we must observe that this conflict of which the apostle speaks does not exist in man before he was renewed by the Spirit of God. The godly, on the other hand, in whom regeneration of God has begun, are so divided that with the chief desire of the heart they aspire to God They seek celestial righteousness and they hate sin and yet they are drawn down to the earth by the relics of their flesh. And thus, while pulled in two ways, they fight against their own nature and nature fights against them. What is Calvin saying? This is what the Christian looks like. life looks like, men. This is what it looks like. That this side of heaven, you have been given a new identity and you've been given the Holy Spirit 
And that means you now, for the first time, have entered into a war, a battle against sin and against death, a battle that you already know the end. You already know the victory. Jesus Christ died, He rose again, and you have victory. But this side of heaven, before you were glorified, you were in the midst of a battle every single day, every single hour, every single minute. And if you feel discouraged at this point this morning, I want you to remember again what the law is for. To show you how deep it really goes. So if you find yourself this morning as I'm teaching this a little bit uncomfortable, I'm suggesting to you that maybe that's actually a good thing. Because of the third and final question, where we're going to end this morning. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law... That when I do right, evil lies close at hand. In other words, when I do good, when I do rightly, when I do what I'm supposed to, evil is right there. It's lurking in the shadows. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Again, you've been changed from the inside out as a Christian. But, verse 23, I see in my members, in other words, externally, Another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. I'm in the midst of a battle, Paul says. And he feels like he's losing. And it causes him to ask this question in verse 24. Wretched man that I am. In a moment of true honesty, of true self-reflection, seeing how bad he really is, He asked this question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he answers it, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Why is it important that the law reveal just how sinful you are? Because without it, you will not turn to the only one who can deliver you from death, Jesus Christ. Until you recognize your own need, you will continually try to fight this war on your own. And men, I'm telling you, you will fail. Every time. Every time. And so practically this morning, who or what is it in your life that you are looking to to deliver you from your sin? I want you to be very honest in your tables this morning about that. In his book, Counterfeit Gods, Tim Keller makes a point about our idols. It's not just that we worship other gods besides God himself. It's that we look to these things to be our deliverance. And in that, he calls them functional saviors. That we are looking to these things that we worship, not just because they are pretty or seem good, but because we think these things are going to make our sin better. So whatever it is that in your life that you find yourself struggling with, worshiping, the deeper that you chase those things down to your indwelling sin, you're going to see that functionally you worship these things because you think they're actually going to make your life better, that they are going to provide rescue for you. So again, if you think it's success that is what is life is all about, and that is what you worship. It's because deep down you think the more successful you are is going to make up for your lack of it. 
that if it is lust that you find yourself this morning consumed with, it's because you have this deep, deep wound of intimacy that you lack, that you think going after some image or looking at some girl is going to provide some temporary relief or rescue or deliverance. It's twisted. It's dark. It's a lie. But that's how dark our sin really is. We must recognize Paul's question here. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? In other words, I can't do it. I can't deliver myself. Who's going to do it? Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is what I want to leave you with as you go to your tables. The gospel is for everyone. It's for everybody. It's for the non-Christian. The gospel is for the Christian too. And one of my favorite things about what we believe in the Reformed faith is that we believe that, like many other Protestants, that yes, we are saved not by works but through faith. But I believe what sets us apart is that our theology is consistent and it continues into our sanctification. We believe we're sanctified by grace too. So I think practically a lot of times the way that we live is, well, I know I'm justified by faith, but I'm sanctified by works. I, I know to get to heaven, I understand that. That I, you know, I can't do that on my own. I need to be resurrected, and so that's through faith and not by works. But practically, now, sanctification, I've got to do that on my own. And I think what Paul's trying to get us to see this morning is, no, no, no. You're justified through faith. You're sanctified through faith as well. The power of the Holy Spirit, the power of the gospel is for you. Not the day you first, just when you became a Christian, but every single day of the Christian life. Herman Melville, the writer of Moby Dick, says it this way. Love this quote. Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike. Right, he's one of us. (laughs) Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. Brothers, I want you to know this morning that the the gospel of Jesus Christ is for you. It's for you. And to learn that the Christian life, this side of heaven, is constantly preaching the gospel to yourself. Asking the question that Paul just asked, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus Christ has delivered you from this body of death. And reminding yourself that over and over and over again, in the middle of your sin and temptation, after your sin and temptation, every single day, every hour, every minute, Jesus Christ has delivered you. You are no longer bound by sin, but you have been set free. So now walk. Walk in a way that lives in light of the grace that you've been given. Walk in dependence on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only when you truly understand your sin can you truly begin to understand your deliverance and understand what this great hymn says, Rock of Ages, when it says, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. We are in the midst of a war, men, 
And it is a war that's to the death. It's a battle you cannot fight on your own. Thanks be to God. Because He has given us one who has already fought the war and won. Our Lord Jesus Christ died and rose again. You have been set free. Our task now is to walk daily, reminding ourselves and one another in community of what Christ has done for us. Let me pray for you and send you off to your groups. Father, again, we are thankful uh, for the book of Romans. We're thankful for the clarity in which Paul speaks, his understanding, not just of your word and the scriptures and the gospel, but also of us. I think because he knew sin so well himself. I don't think he was kidding when he said, I am the chief of sinners. I think he believed that. So I pray this morning that we would begin to have a truer picture of ourselves, that as we think about the law and its role, the way that it is a mirror to us, we would see just how wretched we are. But I pray we would not be left there, but that would push us constantly and always to ask Paul's third and final question, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that you in those moments, you would remind us to be thankful for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ who has delivered us. He is our rescue. And may we walk as rescued men this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.